I lay there for a few seconds, fixed my bayonet, and in a minute was up the hill. What happened after, I shall never forget as long as I live. I was just putting my hand into my haversack to feel for a bomb when a shell burst just a little to the right of me. And at the same minute, it felt as if someone had hit me in the back with a sledgehammer. Today's guest was an avid student of military history from a young age. And when he started looking into his ancestry, found 11 ancestors that fought in World War I. And lucky for us, they were prolific letter writers, providing an insight into what life was like on the front lines. Utilising his 16 years in the police force, today's guest became a battlefield investigator and tracked his ancestors, affectionately referred to as the boys, through Egypt, Gallipoli and the Western Front. We are lucky enough to hear some of the letters in today's episode and you can find more in his book, Duty Nobly Done, episode 108, Adam Holloway. The One Moment Please podcast. Yeah. Hi, Adam. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I'm actually excited about having a conversation with you because you have very extensively um, researched World War One because you've had ancestors that fought in World War One that were prolific letter writers, very luckily. So we have a good insight in regards to what they were going through. But how did how did your interest in the Great War sort of all come about. Hi, Fiona. Thanks so much for having me on. Um, World War One for me was um, pretty early on in the piece. I um, had a very uh, big interest in military history from, from a, quite a young age. Um, mm. My father's a Vietnam uh, veteran, so mm. you know, sort of introduced into the idea of war uh, from a young age. And um, after watching a couple of um, movies and documentaries, I started to get interested in in it and uh and then by the time we get to grade eight grade nine we're watching gallipoli and then it starts to take its form and then i just started reading reading more and more about it and um i guess i i just started to get to know all these different villages and towns in france and belgium and one day i thought i'd love to go there i'd love to go and see all these things and and in 99 i got to go over to france for the first time and of course the internet was in its infancy, so I had no idea uh, about any of my family members who'd fought apart from my great-grandfather. And so I just sort of blundered around for a few days around the Somme and uh, Ypres and, and had a good look around. And then it wasn't until uh, maybe five or so years later that Dad was doing the um, family tree. That's what happens when you retire. You start doing Ancestry.com. <laughs> so he started doing the family tree, and um, we discovered that my great-grandfather wasn't the only one it was he his two brothers and eight cousins all from the one family so um that certainly piqued my interest and in all the reading about the first world war and suddenly had a, a purpose and um that started a what i thought might be just a slim volume a, a nice little research project so i would you know uh, gather all the information about what the 11 boys had been doing uh, put it together in a, in a small, you know, PDF and then send it around to the family so they knew what had happened. And uh, I had a literal light bulb moment and uh, I thought, hang on, I wonder if there's a story in this. And uh, that started some really intense research and more travelling to the Western Front. So, yeah, so pretty much from a young age all the way through to now, it's always been a, a real passion of mine to, yeah, to learn more about it. 
When you were traveling around, did you find out, so you traveled around because you knew that there was a family history there, but you didn't realize how strong and you found that out after you went after your first trip? That's correct. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was sort of going to all different places, not fully understanding how the battles or the towns fit into everything and where my family might have been. And and there were so many times I was so close to where they'd been. And uh, when I went back in 2012, I went back um, with so much more information. I was literally able to walk in their footsteps and get a real feel. Yeah. to, To be able to write, you need to... You need to walk that ground so you get a real feel and a real sense for, you know, the topography and the undulations of the ground and just what they could see. That's, you know, part of trying to immerse the reader into what the boys went through was, you know, putting yourself there. And when you're, and when you're saying, right, you're talking about your book because you wrote a book about World War One. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so I essentially started writing about 2012 and um, by 2018, I'd managed to accumulate 253,000 words for the first manuscript, and um, uh, Big Sky Publishing was happy enough to to take it on board, which is lovely, and I had a great editor, Kathy. She was awesome, and together we went through and just whittled it down so it was nice and streamlined and telling the story pretty much from the first shots at Gallipoli all the way through to the last battles. Wow. So, yeah, the boys were just into basically every every battle except uh, except one. So, it was a really great opportunity to learn even more about the First World War. That was for me uh, such a huge learning uh, opportunity. Um, so, yeah, and so and eventually, uh, "Jude Nobly Done" was written and actually got to launch it on Remembrance Day, uh, two thousand and eighteen. So, exactly a hundred years after the. After wow. the armistice, so that was a very, very special moment. When you went back the subsequent times, did you actually have their letters? Because you said you you literally walked in their footsteps. So did you have mm. those letters and were reading them at the time when you in were 2012? Yeah, no. In 2012, all I had was where their battalions had been. I hadn't quite discovered the letters yet uh, that early in the piece. Um, what happened was when I came back and began my research in earnest, I discovered Trove, which is the National Library of Australia, where they've um, scanned in newspapers from 150 years ago. And so there was newspapers from the Great War between 1914 and 1919. And I was able to start immersing myself in that period, reading the letters. That's where I found the first letters, because what they would do is the the soldiers would write home to the family and then the, the local newspapers looking for stories would say, you know, send us some of the transcriptions from the letters so we can reprint them in the paper. And so that's how I came across my first lot of letters, um, particularly with Frank being the first one to go. I had very little on Frank and what he did in Gallipoli. And it wasn't until I found the trove letters that I started to really bring him to life and find out exactly um what he'd done and um, and just his general mental approach to the what was going on around him. It was quite fascinating to read it and quite That's special. interesting because when I heard that you had the letters, I had envisaged you finding a, um, you know, a shoebox in an attic somewhere or, you know, in a cupboard mm. that, you, that was yeah. 
at your grandparents' home or your parents' home and you found these really old, flaky, fragile letters, but they were actually in the in the archives. Yeah, in in the first instance, absolutely. And I, I had visions of that as well. I scoured all the, the local relatives. I went to there and said, now, where's all your shoeboxes? Let's check under the bed. Let's check cupboards and find it. And um, But ultimately, the, the letters um, came from a couple of different family members and... Um, uh, from some of the boys, I call them the boys, the eleven boys. So there's there's four sets of brothers, and there's a, there's a couple of twins in there as well. So, and they all come from the one set of grandparents. So it's it's the Holloway bloodline all the way down, which was really intriguing because there would have only been about four or five more eligible blokes to go out of such a small family. So, but um, I, I managed to get my hands on some letters um, probably about halfway through when I was writing the book, and luckily they were letters of some of the boys that came in halfway through the war. So it wasn't uh, pivotal. And then later on, just through my basic researching, I came across um, uh, some letters that had been sent to a fellow in Papua New Guinea in the 1960s from one of the boys. I won't say who, because it'll spoil spoil the book. (laughs) And what was fascinating was they were both World War I veterans and in the letter, he's writing about current events in 1961, 1962, and then all of a sudden in the, in the letter, he re, re, um, goes back in time and just starts talking about instances from the war. And he'll say, oh, forgive me for, for harking back to the old days, but do you remember this? And it was like three pages of just this clarity of, of remembering something that happened 50 years earlier. And... Um, part of those letters filled in a lot of blanks that I had questions about. So to come across those letters was just unbelievable. So, And how did um, you come across them? Uh, online. It was just doing basic searches and it came up on really? a, yeah, just a, a lost database somewhere and all of a sudden it came up and we sent away for it and, um, and it was like a family trust or something and they sent us the letters. So, yeah, it was very special to wow. have that. Yeah. And so, did yeah. he had he served with this other person in PNG, or was it just someone that he knew was a veteran and therefore was sort of sharing war stories? Yeah, he'd met him in Papua New Guinea between the wars, and this other fellow's name was Fred Palmer Archer, and he became a coast watcher during World War Two, and um, spying on the Japanese in Rabaul. So um, he was eventually got back to Australia safely because if the the Japanese caught a coast watcher. Um, it was not a nice. So dangerous. Oh, so dangerous. So. And they were very. For those of you that don't know, they were often on atolls by themselves. They yeah. were on really remote areas of the coast of Australia, like Western Australia and Northern Territory and stuff. Mm. And they were by themselves. They were isolated. So if they got captured or caught, mm. then there was there was no help coming. No, well, especially with Fred, he was in uh, Rabaul, just off um, Papua New Guinea. So he was in occupied Jap- Japanese territory at the time. Oh wow! Oh my goodness! <laughs> so yeah, he had um, he was going to be in all sorts. Oh, it would have been, and and, um, and then one of uh, my fellow caught up with him again after when he went back to Papua New Guinea himself, and um, they kept up a, a friendship and and letter writing until um, the mid-60s when Fred passed away. So it was a really fantastic insight into just 
um, how this particular one of my boys was processing the war and um, and how not not every digger wants to talk about it, but he had no problem talking about it. So, yeah, it was just part of his therapy, I guess. It's interesting because I grew up with, well, my grandfather never talked about the war. There was one instance, I remember one afternoon, he talked about it. I don't know why, I was quite young. And I I have a vivid picture of my grandfather sitting on the on the um, sofa and I was in front of him on the floor, in front of the heater. And my mum and my aunt and my grandmother were in the kitchen, so he the, behind him so that he couldn't see them. And he was just talking to me the mm. only time he's ever talked about it. And they were all in tears behind mm. him, yeah. but not wanting to make a sound because they had never heard any of the stories either. So it, mm. I grew up as a generational, you just don't talk about the war. You never ask about it. Yeah. So it's interesting that it's interesting that he was so forthcoming in regards to discussing the war. Yeah. Yeah. And I was very blessed. I was able to talk to his grandson um, a couple of times oh. And he remembered a few anecdotes that um, this fellow would, would be sitting at the dining table and he would, uh, he, he loved Tennyson. He'd just start reciting poetry at the dinner table. This is like in the 60s. Yeah. And um, and then he'd start talking about something about the war and then all of a sudden he'd just go quiet. And that was when they realised that he'd finished talking and that he'd come across a memory that he didn't really want to go past, um, you know, or deal with right there and then, and he would just go quiet. And mm. then uh, and then he'd pick up a bit later on with something else. But he was always sitting at his desk writing and writing. He kept up a correspondent with a lot of his old veteran mates. And I wish I had those letters. <laughs> I'd love to know what he wrote in those letters. So... You know, it would have been fascinating to have all that, but that's all gone, unfortunately. So Why is it, it all gone? What, well, you know, I think it's funny. During the research process, and this will be the hardest part for anyone who's doing doing um, research into their family history, whether it's writing a book or something along those lines, um, you're going to come across people in the family who just don't want to give up the family information. Um, so they'll have, you, you know, they have letters and you know they have photos, but they just don't want to give it to you for some reason. And um, I came across that. And then you also have instances where um, the people who were left behind didn't always uh, look favourably on the sacrifice made by their husband, who I had an instance where one of the, my boys, his best mate, um, was killed later in the war. And his wife was left behind with two young daughters and, and a dairy farm. And when all his effects were sent home, um, she threw them all in a fire. So her, her reaction was that um, he'd left them and he shouldn't have gone and and um, she didn't want to read anything about it. So that happened a fair few times that I came across when I was researching. So because, you know, a lot of people think about the veterans, it's there's a lot of people left at home that had to deal with a whole range of issues, whether the the fellow was killed in action or missing or came home and but never fully came home. You know, it was a it was a terrible, terrible conflict. So it was interesting coming across all those different aspects and effects of the war. 
uh, in different people as you're researching and talking to them. What what one of your of the boys that you refer to did you mm. feel most connected with? I think I think for me Frank is generally everyone's favorite. I think Frank is um, the closest to me. I think he he has a real sense of that duty and um, and service and he just loves his men. He gets promoted and he just doesn't think of anything else but them uh, and his mates. Uh, he, he basically, the minute the war was declared, the very next day he was enlisting. So, wow. yeah, he, he, was, he was ready to rock and roll straight away and with his best mate, Arthur Harley, they joined up together, had consecutive regimental numbers. Um, they went off to all their training together in Egypt and they both ran ashore at Gallipoli together. Um, Frank was, just from reading one of Frank's letters, you know, you, you sort of, when you're writing it, you think, okay, how do I get this right without it being cliched or already done to death? And and um, I just came across this letter where Frank basically explains from the, from the minute he gets off the battleship Queen into the rowboats, he's actually rowing one of the boats for the last 50 yards. And he describes I didn't realise the... they were rowboats. Mm, yeah, so well, they had a little steam boat called a pinnace, and it would it was towing like a, a line of four or five um, big whaler rowing boats, like big lifeboats. Yeah, and um, they'd fit about forty or fifty blokes in this boat, or maybe a bit less. And generally, the whole platoon was in there together, and um, most of the soldiers are facing forward, but Frank and the other rowers are, you know, rowing. Uh, backwards so they're not quite seeing what's happening so so then the the pinnace gets to about 50 yards from shore and they cast off and then they have to row the last 50 yards and then um get to shore and then he was told you have to be the last one out of the boat and by this time there's a few few rounds coming down range and uh and then he um manages to get out of the boat and get up onto shore and he and it goes from there. So yeah, so it's basically the op- basically the opening scene of the book. So, do you have a letter there from him that you can read? I have um, I have a couple of different different letters from Frank. Um, do you have one describing that scene? Yeah. Do they still teach Gallipoli and watch the movies and stuff at school? Yeah, absolutely, they do. I um, actually, I had the good good, good fortune um, recently to uh, give a presentation at uh, my son's uh, grade nine class. So they had me come in because they suspected I might know a little bit about the war. So I thought I'd better go in there and do that. And uh, also, that's cool. That would have been cool for your son. Yeah, it was great, you know, and um, and also to do. Um, an Anzac Day service a couple of years ago too, where I got to speak uh, as well. So I, I really did enjoy that uh, aspect of um, keeping their, um, keeping the uh, the memory alive. So, so what I've got here is he's he's basically written to his parents, and it's the story of the landing retold. And um, he basically says, just I'll I'll, I'll run through here. He goes. Uh, I had been picked for an oarsman. I had never done any rowing before except in the landing practice at Lemnos, 
but I can tell you I rowed then if I ever did. The oarsmen had orders to stay in the boats until last, but this was impossible. The men, in their eagerness to get over the side of the boats, crushed us against the sides. I tried to stand up, but could not for the crush. However, I let my oar slip into the water and leaned over the side, and by degrees was pushed over. I went clean under, but getting my feet on the bottom, I gave myself a push forward, landing in shallower water. I managed to struggle out of the water under the shelter of the cliffs and fell on my face, clean knocked out by the rowing. I lay there for a few seconds, fixed my bayonet, and in a minute was up the hill. What happened after, I shall never forget as long as I live. And then it just goes from there. It's unbelievable. Um, For those that are listening outside of Australia and aren't familiar mm -hmm. with the Australian history of Gallipoli and what actually took place there, can mm -hmm. you briefly summarise the um, horrific situation that those guys found themselves and why they were on those that beach, that Gallipoli beach? So um, when, when the Australian uh, Imperial Force was... Uh, created and they were heading across to join basically the war on the Western Front. Uh, Turkey came into the war. Um, there was also the issue of training the Australians on the Salisbury Plain, which is in England, because uh, at that time in the winter of 1914 uh, was quite horrific and even Canadians were dying from the exposure. So the Australians coming from a tropical climate would not have lasted very long for the Canadians. No. Are dying, so they were diverted to Egypt to continue their training, and the, the plan was then developed to uh, once Turkey had um, entered the war, that they would they would formulate a plan to try and knock Turkey out of the war. It was initially a, a naval uh, attack in February up the Dardanelles, up the Straits, but that was. Uh, a failure with uh, several ships sunk and basically tipped their hand that um, we were interested in in the peninsula. And um, but the, my understanding is the Turks had spies all through Cairo, all through Lemnos, and they knew we were coming, basically. Yeah. Um, so they essentially um, formulated a plan with several different landing beaches. And I think one of the important things is that people realise it wasn't just the Australians and New Zealanders landing at the Baker Peninsula at Hellas, at the opening of the Straits, the British and French landed large forces down there as well. See, um, I never knew that. I always mm, just thought it was the Anzacs. Yes, exactly. Mm. And, 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 you know, and that's natural, I guess, when you're first growing up because all you learn about is the Australian side of things. But um, the, the poor old uh, uh, Tommies, they landed at a place called uh, V Beach and they came in on a ship was specially designed. And when I say specially, I mean not very well designed. It had gangways running down the sides and uh, basically funneling troops into a into the fire of the of the Turks who were sitting up on very well fortified positions. And these poor boys, mm. they, um, if you've seen like Saving Private Ryan, it was, it was an absolute bloodbath. These poor boys were getting opening, cut to pieces. Opening scenes. Opening, opening scenes. scenes of, yeah. 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 The, they described the landing at V Beach that the water was just running red with blood. It was just terrible. Um, conversely at Anzac, um, 
the the fellows that landed in the Anzac Cove were relatively sheltered. They didn't have that same level of intense fire. And when they landed, um, I know there's, there's quite a, different, a few stories about whether we were landed on the right beach, the wrong beach, and things like yes, that. Yes, I always thought it was the wrong beach. Yeah, look, I think um, my understanding is that there was a, a stretch, you know, between point A and point B where they were to make their landing. And mm-hmm. um, that, uh, and Anzac Cove was apparently included in that area. So there, there might have been some might have been fortuitous maybe because if they'd landed any further south on what's called Brighton Beach, it's uh, in an enfiladed position, so it might not have been as sheltered. But um, suffice to say that the terrain that the boys suddenly faced was quite steep, rocky, and um, full of prickly bushes. And so essentially they basically had to scale, you know, almost cliffs to get to the top under under some fire. And um, blokes were getting hit and... Um, by the time they got to the top, they realised they weren't, they're all mixed up as well. So all the battalions are all confused and all the, the brigades were confused. Um, so they didn't know where they were, where they were supposed to go. And then they just struck out and, and headed off. And as part of some of Frank's letters, I, I can almost track him as, as well as you possibly can because it's so confused that he's gone from a Pluggy's Plateau down through Shrapnel Valley, up onto 400 Plateau, across Lone Pine. And in those first few hours, the Australians got across Lone Pine, and but the scrub was too thick and they were losing too many blokes and they just couldn't form a cohesive line any further past and had to retreat back, uh, back onto the, the ridge um, and leave Lone Pine to the Turks until August 1915. So... They, they couldn't see they did, like they were the the um the scrub was so thick that you you'd lose a bloke after about a meter so they were ducking through all that so there was a lot of close quarters fighting and a lot of people just went missing so but somehow they managed to to hang on and uh and how long did they dig in for because it was only expected to though they were only expected to last um days at most if if that because the opposition was so fierce how long did they end up staying they were there until um just before christmas so they ended mm. up staying for nearly eight months the uh, the australians did the british held on a little bit longer into 1916 uh, at hellas before they withdrew but mm. um the, the landing is everyone knows about the landing they know about lone pine one thing i was really mindful was you know exploring some of the battles in the book that people didn't know about so and also explaining how the landing wasn't a foregone conclusion there was all talk of withdrawing on that first night that um, things hadn't gone well and they should they should probably try and evacuate and then they hung on for for about four days before they really felt as full as they could be and uh, the turks had launched a massive counter-attack that was beaten back and that basically set the trench line for the next uh, three and a half months before the defensive. So, yeah, there was very close, like there was very close instances where the Turks, if they just managed to break through one part of the line, could have been on the beach in about 10 minutes. So... It's interesting. And, and for those that don't know the Gallipoli history, the fighting was so intense and mm. the determination of the Aussies and 
the efforts that they did to dig in, it actually won the respect of the Turks. And Turkey has looked after that site um, mm. because it is a, a, essentially a mass grave. And every year there is essentially a pilgrimage back there for Anzac Day um, of yep. Australian and New Zealanders that go. Mm. And it's on my bucket list. I haven't done it. But, um, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I think for those that aren't Aussie or New Zealanders and aren't familiar with the story, that is important to, to know because to obviously mm. to win the respect of your um, what is probably their mortal enemy in regards to the other side of the the uh, yeah. no couple of, really it was a couple of meters away in in reality. It, it absolutely was. It really was, and look, yeah. I, I think it's it's a amazing the grace that we've been shown for over a hundred years. I mean, I was just saying this to someone the other day. I mean, I think the last thing that Australians would do is let the Japanese come and commemorate the bombing of Darwin or, mm. or the, That's the a fair point. yeah, you know, that the Japanese don't get invited to Kokoda um, yeah. and all these other places. So you think we, we deliberately landed there with the express intention of killing as many of their young men as possible and capturing their, their capital and even though we destroyed the flower of their youth over that eight-month period, they lost far more men than we did. Um, they still they still welcome us there. Obviously, there's a tourist element, but it goes deeper than that. As you said, you know, there's that mutual respect. But I think that's just unbelievable grace to allow that mm. to happen. So, mm. especially two two countries, ones like uh, a predominantly Muslim country, another one's predominantly like a Judeo Christian values yep. type country so not only are we is there that that aspect of it but the fact that why we were there so but i think the australians have a general respect from most of their former enemies across the board the germans particularly so there's a grudging respect there from the japanese and the vietnamese i believe from just the australians ability to adapt to jungle fighting and uh yeah, you know, tenacity and determination. So, yeah, I didn't realize there was a respect there from the Vietnamese. I hadn't heard, mm. I hadn't heard that at all. Yeah. Um, so when you go back, and I know that you do tours there now, what's the name of your tour company that you? Well, it's actually uh, really original. It's called Duty Nobly Done Battlefield Tours. <laughs> so, just working off that book, uh, title, um. Well, so, we hadn't mentioned the book title. I was uh, I was leading into that as well. Go on, plug <laughs> yeah. it, plug well, it, plug it. Yeah, so it's uh, it's available from all good bookstores. And uh, <laughs> uh, look, it's um, it's it's really an extension of the book. Is you know, I, I can't let these boys go or the stories go. You yeah. Know? Um, and was there often... a particular letter or story that really stuck out to you? Um. There's a, there's a couple of ones. It's really it's really little stuff that that stood out to me. Yeah. Um, it's like the mundane. Yeah, like like when Frank um, Frank's thoughts towards his own men. You know, he when you're writing letters from Gallipoli, there's no there's not a stationery store that you can just go and get as much paper as you like. So, you know, papers are pretty scarce, and he gets he gets sent a packet of paper. And the first, his first thought is, um, oh, I've got to share it with my mates. 
and he just dishes out all the paper to his mate so they can write a letter to their family. And then at the bottom of the letter, when he's writing back to his family, he goes, could you send me some more paper, please? So he's writing on the last piece. And it's it's those little selfless acts that stand out to me as is what typifies that what people come to know as the Anzac spirit or that, that mateship, you know, putting other people before yourself and and, and other instances there where the where the boys are you know decorated for bravery. Um one one particular story that I, I love the most that really stands out because the other character that people love is Henry Holloway, Frank's cousin. And his nickname's Chick. And what a it's great for, nickname. Oh yeah, it, it's short for chicken. Like I didn't know that the etymology of, you know, the the uh, the insult of oh you're a chicken, you know, like being a coward. But apparently it's been around for a long time. So he used to play football. He used to like to he liked to punch on a bit and uh, have a bit of a bet, a bit of a he was a classic second child syndrome sort of thing going on. Not a nickname anyway, I would have so, given someone to to punch on. Maybe it meant something different in those days. Well, I guess it's uh, like you know little John. He's a big fella, you know, a tiny. Oh, girl. yeah, okay, yeah, it's yeah, the, yeah. The classic Australian, let's give him the opposite nickname. So there was an instance there where Chick was um, checking the line. There, by that, he's walking through the trenches, making sure his men are okay. He was a sergeant at the time. And there's this heavy shelling happening, and they're about to be relieved by another battalion within half an hour. And... Of course, that's the Germans know there's a relief happening, so they start to shell as heavily as possible. Mm. And um, Chick's officer, who's only been with the battalion for like two weeks, and three other men get buried alive by the shelling. And by this time, the, the trenches are destroyed and, and Chick is basically digging with his bare hands while he's under fire. The sniper's trying to get him and there's artillery come flying in and he's just got no thought whatsoever but to get these boys out. He manages to save the first three and then finds his officer and gets gets him out. So he How saves did they all... get buried alive? So what was it that they were buried under? So the trench collapsed. So, oh. yeah, so so the trench is like about six foot deep, about two feet, three feet wide. Yeah. And um, so basically... So tons of soil on top of them, essentially. Yeah. It just You'd just be pinned and basically waiting to die a horrible death. Mm. So, you know, he's, he's digging them out all the while under fire. And then uh, the officer's wounded in the head and he gets sent um, to the aid station and then eventually back to Australia. Um, Chick also gets buried three times um, and dug out. Now, most people, when you read the letters, they get dug out like screaming ninnies, like they're just, just you know, gone to pieces. They've, they've come as close as you can to, to a horrible death. But the, uh, the citation that he got for the military medal for saving the four lives is even though he was buried three times, he still had a cheerful disposition. And it just speaks to the character of this this man. He's like, he's still smiling and cracking jokes and he's been buried alive. But Oh, my goodness. Uh, and then and then the, the, the wonderful thing, during the research uh, for the book, I got to meet the descendants of that officer, Lieutenant Kent, and I managed to track them down, and all they knew is that he'd been wounded. And I was able to tell them the full story and show them a picture of Chick. And this is the man who saved your great-grandfather's life. And oh, he's I've gone all goosebumpy. Yeah. Oh, I, 
and they came to my launch and to the book launch and it was that was the most special moment that i had throughout all the research was you know, you're alive because of this man here and then and then on top of that chick was alive because other people dug him out it was just you know so to, to be able to find them and and talk to them and share all that information that was that was a really special moment so that was enjoyable were there any surprises in terms of that they fought somewhere that you weren't expecting them to fight? Um, I think uh, probably conversely is that by finding proper information and letters, I was able to not make the mistake of including them in a battle they weren't in. So, you know, um, when they're with their battalion and they go into, into the battle, I know where they are, what they're doing. So it's, each battalion has their battle honours of which battles they were involved in. So I was quite, um, I think for me, the, the sheer volume of battles they were all in is what surprises me the most. But luckily I had a letter from another fellow who um, who said, oh, you know, Chick wasn't in this battle he behind the lines. And that's when I learned about nucleus battalions. So what they would do is before sending the entire battalion into an attack and lose the whole battalion, they'd keep 33% of the battalion behind the line. So most of the time, the battalions are only going in at 60% strength into the attack. So so things like that. Like I thought he was in that battle, but he wasn't. And if I'd found, if I hadn't found that letter, I would have just assumed he was. So, so yeah, so being able to be as accurate as, as humanly possible was a real paramount, uh, concern for me so that was great to find that so i think the thing that surprised so, me was how each of them dealt with the battles like like how, someone like how did they Chief. each how did they each deal with it hmm. yeah so like with someone like frank it was very matter of fact it, it it was something that had to be done and it was he was fairly calm with what he had to do chick seemed to enjoy it like he was born for it um and then you have Paul Hilton, he um, he and his brother Ernie, they were like the typical, they came from West End in Brisbane, so they're city boys. All the other boys are pretty much country boys. Um, they, they sang in the choir at church. Uh, Hilton was the superintendent of the, of the Sunday school. And Ernie tried to join up on his 18th birthday but got knocked back for having Why? Bad, he had bad, bad teeth. And in April 1915, they had very high standards for dental <laughs> stuff so wow. that went made, down though absolutely in, in only a matter of months <laughs> so by august he was he was joining and so they off together and um it, it was just interesting looking at the way they both handled their first actions and and what happened and um like particularly with ernie he was in the first battle of bull Corps, uh in 1917 it was terrible and just some of the the things that he wrote and what others wrote it uh, yeah your heart just breaks you know when you when you're writing and you're researching what sort of things did he write he wrote he and, and this is the other thing too Fiona is that the diaries are different to letters and letters are different between who they're sending it to so if it's a letter to a parent it'll have I spoke to so-and-so the other day, I'm keeping well, thanks for the scarf, you know, um, I'll, I'll try and write again in a week's time like they're on holiday. 
um, if they're writing to a brother or another cousin on the in the front line, they might they'll 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 come a bit closer to what's actually happened. They'll actually mention mm. people who've been killed or things that they've done. So so a letter from Ernie to his parents is not going to give me too much information apart from he's trying to protect them, not not let them worry. Whereas a letter that he writes to Chick is more about um, killing his first German and how that makes him feel. Because Chick uh, was with him in training and sort of kept him under his wing a little bit because that's his cousin. And, uh, and and the way that Ernie sort of writes it, you can just tell as he's writing that, that that's really bothering him a lot. So... But like most of those blokes, that um, that feeling goes away when you're surrounded by your mates getting killed. So, yeah, it's just interesting who they share with, what they share, and how much. So, yeah, yeah. I, I can't even, I can't comprehend what it must have been like. Have you shared, or have you had comments from modern day? or even the Vietnam War veterans that have served and have read the letters, have they commented on the information in them? Not so much the letters, but the book itself, actually. Um, I was very blessed to have the book selected by Army for its professional military education reading list in oh, 2021. Wow. Yeah, so that was like... That's a big, that's a big stamp of approval, isn't it? Oh, it, it really was. Like, it was such an mm. honour. It was so humbling because I thought, you know, it'd be great to win awards, you know, industry book awards. And I thought, mm. no, to, to get to get the book selected by the very subject matter uh, that you're writing about, you know, the origins of the Australian Army, it's um, that was amazing. And I got to do a, a presentation at Land Warfare Centre at Canungra. And, oh. the, and I got to talk to, there's quite... They picked five officers and the officers had to read the book and identify uh, elements of good soldiering and and pick out their favourite characters. Of course, Frank was their favourite. Um, and they just present what they thought about the book and the instances that they could, uh, you know, make the correlation between modern-day soldiering and, and and that sort of thing. So it was interesting to, to hear their take on, on how they viewed... A couple of things, which was what I, how I wrote it, uh, what I wrote about, and, and the accuracy and things like that. And I think one of the the best compliments in answer to your question was one of the young fellows. He was an Afghanistan veteran. He'd done a couple of tours, and he came up to me quietly afterwards, and he said, um, "Have you have you ever been under fire?" And I said, "No." And he goes, you, "You've never served?" I said, "No." I said, "I was a police officer for a while," and. Um, and he goes, how, how did you write that uh, that that section? He, he, he talked about a section where there was artillery coming in and, and the sound and the feeling of the ground and, and what and the effect it has, the physical effect it has on the body. And and he just goes, he said, I was reading that and I honestly, I thought I was back there. And I thought that was wow. a, a lovely compliment from someone who's actually been under fire. And he mm. just, I, I didn't really have an answer as to how I could do that. It was just a whole, you know, compilation of lots of information and, and drawing on my own physiological experiences from being under a lot of stress as a police officer that you sort of, you know, I always think 
fear is fear and adrenaline is adrenaline and death is death. So you're just drawing those little aspects and, you know, and I, I used to run a lot of it past my dad from being in Vietnam and, uh, yeah, he used to, um, yeah, he, he was very uh, helpful in understanding a couple of things too. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a compilation of putting it all together. So what did your dad tell you? About... <laughs> well, for, I have two, I have two questions. So let me start with the first one. Mm-hmm. Did you write the book to, as a more of a memoir of your relatives in regards to historic point of view, or did you write it in terms of these are interesting characters, I can research them, yes, as a family link, and I want to do it in terms of a, an Australian history stance? I think uh, when I first started writing it, it was just going to be for the family, and then mm. I realised it could be for public consumption, so I needed mm. to be you know, very accurate with the research but um, I really wanted to tell the stories of the ordinary soldiers and and make sure that, you know, their mates as well were, were included um, in all of this. So we, we know all about the VC winners and the generals and the field marshals. But to actually get down on the ground and, and get into the trenches with these boys and go through it with them, and that was a real turning point for me when I decided to write it in a narrative style in that I would put you in the action with the boys. It wouldn't just be an historical account. So First person account. Virtually, yeah. You're on their shoulder, you're in their platoon, so you you see and hear what they're what they're going through. And that to me allowed me to just immerse the reader a bit more in into the actual the actual story itself. So um, I guess in answer is, is hev- heavily researching so I get it right, so it's accurate and honors their memory. So it was a, it was always about them, uh, not not about me um, just writing a book. So it was always focused on them. I guess is the best way to put it. And um, yeah, just try to set myself a high standard for the information that went in, the information that didn't go in. So so that um, it'll be almost. You know, um, it's it's just a testament to them. I think is the best way to put it. Yeah, and and for and for people to learn more about what the Australians did. Mm. You said you ran chapters and and most of the book past your dad, who was a Vietnam vet. Mm. Did did he ever discuss Vietnam with you prior to doing the book? Yeah, it, Dad's. He's uh, funny. He's um. It didn't affect him too much to hear him tell it, and, and it never did. Like growing up, there was never any signs that he had any any issues from his his tour. Um, he he took lots and lots of photographs, and so we would actually have slideshows at home. And wow, yeah, so he'd set up set up the projector, and um, we'd watch some slides, and he used to take the old eight millimeter film of us when we were little. So every now and then we look at that too. But he was a good photographer and he, he took a lot of photographs of the landscape around Vietnam, but also the locals. So just taking photos of the villages and the, and the young kids and all the different places. And um, he didn't go into too much detail. I, I, I recall a couple of things that he would say. Um, that, that he was only scared once, and that was when they, they was in the 
middle of the jungle and he couldn't even see his hand in front of his face at night time. It was that dark. And he was the he was on guard duty. <laughs> and he said that was the only time he really thought, what am I doing here? And the other time was they'd been in in um, what they say, they, they call it in-country um, mm. for two, two or three weeks. And uh, and he and his mate had um, were in a couple of Jeeps and there was two tanks in front of them and some APCs and they were travelling out on an operation. And um, the the front Jeep had his best mate and Dad was in the, in the second Jeep and the first Jeep hit a mine and brewed up. Like, no one was killed, but they're... They lost their sergeant, badly wounded, and a couple of other blokes. And uh, and Dad said that was the the, the time where you just, you grabbed your M16 and you just started scouting the jungle in case it was like an ambush, like an IED of sorts. And they worked out it was a mine and it wasn't an ambush. But he told me that story just really simply, many many times. I'd always say, "Hey, do you remember when you told me about this? Can you tell me that story again?" And he told me that story. And then the other day, just the other day, this is how the, the mind works, that selective memory and either whether you call it repressing a memory or he didn't want to, you know, um, embellish it. Or He actually just basically said, oh, yeah, it, it tipped over and it caught fire. And and, and then I was I was pulling Lenny out. Then I, then I went back and pulled out someone. Then I went back and pulled out someone. So I'm like, you never mentioned that before. <laughs> And so it was, it was just fascinating to sit down and have a talk to him about that because he's been going through his, his memoirs at the moment. So so he, he's writing his own? Yeah, yeah. So it's, oh, it's fabulous. Good. Yeah, so it's, it's very important that we, you know, we document all this stuff. But just fascinating, like 40-something years I've been talking to him about it, and that's the first I've heard that part of the story. And I can only put that down to just – that natural you know, self-deprecation, not wanting to ignite yourself because he's a very humble sort of man. And, and yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. Just amazing. So, Did any of those guys survive from that? Yeah, gym? so they all survived, but two of them were wounded and had to go back to Australia. Dad's best mate, he had a busted eardrum, but he was back in action a week later. So they, they stuck together for the rest of the tour. So, yeah, mm. it was a bit of a shake-up, but um, they just everyone just got on with what they had to do and just kept going. And uh, Did yeah. you find that was a common theme as well when you're researching the boys, that you just got on with it because that's what they had to do? Abs- absolutely, absolutely. And and that's where I just sort of, you just sort of just discover that the, the human mind is just the most powerful weapon You've got a bloke who was, Frank's a photographer from Roma. So he takes photos of weddings and group photos or some cattle in a field. And then they all they all did militia training. So they all knew how to shoot a rifle, ride a horse and things like that. But to go from being a photographer and then five seconds after landing at Gallipoli, they're all killers. And then that becomes the, the new normal. Uh, sitting sitting in a ditch and eating bully beef and sitting next to someone who was your best mate you were just talking to five minutes ago and they're now dead in the middle of a trench. And they can still write letters and they can still talk about hope and reminisce about life. It's just, yeah, it, it gives a really 
amazing insight into how much the human mind can take and then uh, say that's the new normal and I can I can operate in that. And I think it's a lot of the, the, the people around you. So if everyone's doing that, you don't want to be the guy that's not. So, you know, there'd be a lot of, a lot of group um, support in a way, looking out for each other. Because, uh, like I, as I said before, even after all that research, even after reading about it for so long, I still can't comprehend how they do it. So, did did all of them fight in Gallipoli? Uh, just Frank. So Frank was the only okay. one to go to Gallipoli, and then basically from. July 1915 onwards, the other 10 start to enlist. And uh, by the time they get to Egypt, Gallipoli is finished. And so basically um, the next chapter is the Western Front. So they all end up in France and Belgium and and uh, progressively fight their way through to the, uh, the end of the war. Um, we lose three, so three of them are killed. And two of them have no known grave. So I've been able to oh, go back over sad. there. It is sad. I, I've got a rough idea where they are, where they will be. Okay. Yeah. So, but, you know, to be able to go there and walk the ground away from the cemeteries, away from the memorials and actually go out where it happened, that's really special to be able to do that. I, not everyone can travel. It's expensive. It's a long way to go. But if you, if you have the, the opportunity, it's... It's hard to describe. It's a really special um, connection that you have with that that place. So to go over there would be yeah. Have you ever I'd recommend it? Have you ever thought of going back over there and doing a virtual tour? Um, I know there's a few podcasts that do do that, and a few people who do it. I am. Yeah, I'm but they're not, not you, Adam. Social media. Come I on. Know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you just I, get your phone and just record yourself. And I'm talking I'm doing yeah. videos so they can yeah, see. Yeah. But yeah, I tried doing that even when I was over there last year when I was doing the reconnaissance for this year's tour in April, and I just I just can't do it. I just don't have the consistency or the ability to keep doing it. So it'd be a bit piecemeal and probably not very fun. Um, but um, what I would try and do this time you need is. To- try and take as many videos and photos as I can and have a running commentary going. So I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> so, you need to take someone that can just sort of say, okay, Adam, turn around and tell me where we are. And you know, they, they're in control of that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's actually good because I've got a fellow. Um, so essentially how it all come up was um, a fellow by the name of Phil Hora. He's an Australian living in France and he runs uh, sacred ground tours which is like, you know, you might go out for a day or two or three days. You might be in France and think, um, you know, I'm on my European holiday of a lifetime, but I want to spend a couple of days on the Western Front. So you um, hit up Phil and he'll take you out and about for a couple of days, show you around the sites and, and get you to know, you know, get you around all different places. And then I thought, I, I sort of came on board and thought, well, let's, let's put together some bigger tours and uh, really get into the, the whole um, Western Front, you know, so everyone understands how it all fits in with each other, battle and and um, take take a group of people over and um, take them where their ancestors fought and sometimes died. So, and then tell telling the stories of those men through the tour, 
So trying to make a group tour personal. So it's, but um, there's another fellow that I've met. He's coming along as like um, like a, a bit of a dog's body. That's what he's, he's called himself. He's going to come along as the coffee guy and the uh, photographer. So um, I'll uh, I'll get him to take some good photos and some and uh, yeah. Interview you. Interview, Interview me on you the on the, on the side. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so inspire me to come up with something uh, poetic or, <laughs> or insightful. I'm sure it'll be a real uh, entertaining spectacle. What were the biggest, what was the biggest battles that the boys wrote about that they were involved in? I think um, one of the biggest battles was I think ball core with Ernie. And then I think Frank, Frank writing about a battle on Gallipoli that you never know about because there's so many different battles happening over there. You just know. Do you have that letter? Um, Can you read it? Actually, absolutely. I can, um, I'll just see if I can find that here because um, he gets wounded and you sort of think to yourself, well, how did he get wounded? Um, uh, Here we go. Okay. Uh, So in this instance here, um, I knew that Frank had been wounded on a particular date. And it was a date that I wasn't very familiar with. So I had the opportunity to learn about a new battle. And it's the Battle of Sniper's Ridge. Um, and the 9th Battalion were tasked with uh, attacking these Turkish trenches in broad daylight. So you you picture the final battle of uh, Gallipoli, the movie, and that's what these boys are about to go out into. And um, and so when, when you look at his service records, all it says is wounded 28 June, 1915. And that's it. And you think, well, well, how did he get wounded? What happened there? And then all of a sudden you come across this letter. And in the letter, Frank says, uh, on the afternoon of 28, June 28, our company, B company, together with C company, were ordered to take a trench in front of our trenches. I had volunteered to go as a bomb thrower. There were six of us to the company. And of course we had to lead the way out of the trenches. Country, of course, is very hilly about here, and there were two ridges between the two trenches, or at least one between and the next trench being on the second. As soon as we put our head over the trenches, they were at us with a rapid fire, and we had not gone more than five paces before a shell went whizzing past us and burst to our rear, catching several of our men behind. We bomb throwers at once opened out at several pace intervals and fixed our bayonets. Another shell came and burst right in front of me and ploughed up the earth all around, but I escaped. We doubled over the ridge and down into the next hollow. We were now right below the Turkish trenches and they were firing down the slope at us as we came up and hurling bombs in all directions. They now had guns planted on us from all quarters. Several more shells burst near me, just to the side. I could see the smoke from them out of the corner of my eye, but I did not bother to turn my head to see whether they had hit anyone. The main object was to get close enough to the trenches on top of the ridge to be able to use my bombs. I was just putting my hand into my haversack to feel for a bomb when a shell burst just a little to the right of me, and at the same minute it felt as if someone had hit me in the back with a sledgehammer. A friend of mine who was just on my left shouted, What's up, Frank? For I had almost fallen, but managed to stagger to my feet. I shouted, I'm hit. I then put my hand on the back of my tunic and could find no signs of bleeding. All I could feel was the hole where it had entered. I did not know whether the shot had gone through me or not. The pain was great enough for anything. However, I managed to pull myself together and tried to catch up with my mates. 
but it was no use. The muscles had all gone stiff and I could hardly move. And then it just goes on from there. And I think the thing that what... stand... sorry, the thing that stood out to me there was that even though he'd been hit, he was his first thought was I've got to get to my mates and I've got to get those bombs up to this this trench. And unfortunately his his um whole right side seized up because the was actually pushing on his spine and um yeah, paralyzing his right hand side. So pretty That's what I was gonna ask you, what what wounds he sustained. Yeah, yeah, he was mm. Yeah, paralyzed, and he had to crawl basically 200, uh, 250 yards back to his own trench. Trying, He was trying to drag other wounded mates back with him as he was trying to do it one-handed. Jesus so, Christ. They're a different oh, level of just, human back there then, weren't they? Like, Absolutely. Absolutely mm, supermen. Um, mm. You know, so it, um, it, was, it was a real honour to get to know them, and I felt like I got to know them. They were my boys, and... And it was actually, it was quite terrible for me when I finished writing the book because it was like we'd stopped talking for a bit. <laughs> so you, you sort of... Had they, wrote, had they wrote about the end of the war? Talking about ending the book, did they write about the end of the war? I think they didn't so much write about the end of the war apart from a couple where they sort of were just eager to get home. I think that the main thing that they wanted to do was the job had been done and they yeah. just wanted to get you know, they just wanted to get home. A couple of them went to England to learn some new trades um, okay. so they could take take the skills back with them to Australia. Um, so they got a, like a leave of absence to go and do some work in, in England. Um, one of them in particular, he, he, well, one of the reasons I call it duty nobly done is because they're all a bunch of goody two-shoes just like me. So none of them had any red ink in their book. Um, until January 1919, after the war had finished, one of them went AWOL um, over Christmas and New Year's for about three or four days. So he got some red ink, but it was after the war, so it doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that counts either. Who was he writing that letter to that was the account of him getting wounded? That was actually to his father. So That's interesting. Frank, yeah. 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 Frank was pretty straight up with his parents. So um, I think they were all pretty pragmatic. Most of them, the casualty lists were ridiculous and they were just, mm. and that's one of the other things I know from some of the research is my great grandfather, before he joined up, um, he would get letters at home or read the letters um, that Frank had been sending back. And I remember him writing that Frank's mother was terrified of reading the newspaper in those first couple of months on Gallipoli because she just couldn't stand the idea of seeing his name in the casualty list. So, um, yeah. So it was pretty pretty terrible stuff at home too. So but the, the book sort of focuses more on, on their experiences, not so much what happens at home. So otherwise it'd be twice the size and <laughs> it would never have got published. You should do so. another one. You should do a volume two in regards to the homes and weave them into it through their letters and stories, but from the home front. Yeah. That it's, would be interesting um, to do. Yeah. I mean, you could do it as fiction and then have that element of truth, truth in it as well. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. I think do... I'd, I'd be very popular if I started writing another book here. <laughs> Why? 
very time consuming, very, um, and I think, you know, in, in a way it, uh, with, with my, um, uh, as I've mentioned before, very immersive to, to be able to write that book, I had to sort of be in the 1914, 1918 period of it. And, uh, did you start um, speaking a, a lot more formally? Yeah. In well, everyday I, I always, life? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, I, I always I, I enjoy British um, comedies and Blackadder and all that stuff. So it's and yeah. and Blackadder goes forth is the one where they're in the First World War trenches. So I usually talk like that anyway. So, but it was it was just um, it was just a really interesting experience. There was there was a few times I put it aside for about three months, and I almost decided that it was getting to be too much. Um, but I eventually got it done and. Uh, in, in a way, it was a little bit of a therapy too for me, you know, um, from being a from being a policeman for 16 years. A lot of stuff that I'd gone through was able to sort of incorporate into this. So that was helpful in a way too. That, that was actually quite good from that point of view. What areas of, what areas of policing were you in? Because you were uh, in for a while. Yeah, I was, uh, just over 16 years uh, in the yeah. Queensland, Queensland Police. Um so it's mainly uh, general duties, uh, uniform. So I, I never did traffic branch. So I did uh, general duties and then I went to criminal investigation branch. Um, and then I finished at the academy training the recruits, um, operational skills and tactics before I uh, left, the, left the job. So about 10 years ago now. <laughs> so how did your time in the police force you said that it was cathartic for you i don't know if you were use those exact words but i'll put words in your mouth to some degree um <laughs> in regards to writing the book about them given your service why was it so cathartic i think because you go through so many different i guess traumatic experiences as a police officer and they're largely unresolved you go from job to job um and then you basically go home and you come back and do it again the next day. So you, you're very rarely going to admit you've got a concern or a problem if with anything. I remember one one particular job in my first year, we had two fatal car accidents in one afternoon. And the first one was um, that stereotypical awful one you don't want to go to, you know. Um, and and then the second the second one. Um, was a young fellow. He's only eighteen, and I was only twenty-one at the time. So I joined when I was very, very young. And um, I remember saying to the one of the senior constables I was working with, I said, um, um, "I had a pretty, uh, pretty awful afternoon. You reckon we should, you know, go back to the station and have a have a drink?" And uh, I was just going to have a soft drink. I don't drink. Eat. And he just went, "No, I'm just going home." And I went. Okay, so that's how we deal with that. Okay, no worries. <laughs> and I remember being rung by a HSO from Brisbane to see What's if I was an HSO? okay. Oh, human services officer, I think it was back then. Or human support officer. HR, something along those lines. Essentially. Something <laughs> something like that. And they, they rang me from Brisbane and um and they said, uh, how did you go? Is everything all right? I went, Yeah, I'm fine. And they went, Okay, good. <laughs> So you just went, okay, so that's that's fine. So you just get on with it. And so you just sort of go go through the motions and you just do the job and just keep going. And um, 
I guess, from that point of view, it sort of gives you a little bit, not a lot, I'm talking like 1% compared to what these blokes went through. Um, it just gives you that idea that the mind can accommodate a lot, um, but not not forever. <laughs> you know, so how, do you, how do you deal with that coming home when you've had a, let's term it as a hard day in terms of what mm. you've seen and what you've had to experience and then not pass that trauma onto your partner, a significant other, and also allow them to understand that you've had a really bad day. Yeah. I think for me, I was able to compartmentalize it and therefore not share it very often with people. Um, mm. So, and, and that wasn't the best way to deal with it. I know that, you know, it's like, but you sort of, Again, like these boys here, they're trying to shield their family from the hurt and the pain. That's one aspect of why we don't talk about it. The other is you've already dealt with it, so you don't want to rehash it. So it's it's not even have you, you dealt don't with want it. To tell them um, I, as best as you possibly can, I think, because there's so much. I mean, I there's um, there's no one particular job that, that sort of comes to mind that I have any drama with. So that's been good. You know, I haven't, mm. I don't have like, I don't have any dreams or things like that. So, but being out of the job has been a really awesome blessing because I've been able to get alongside a lot of current serving, uh, emergency services, first responders um, with your paramedics in particular is a really tough job. And the one piece of advice I give them, which I didn't, have given to me and I sort of worked out as I went along was to keep those lines of communication open with your loved ones from the very beginning. And that, that'll help you to uh, deal with it, but also help them to not get it all in one go when you let, when everything uh, unravels um, and they can sort of just get an insight into what, what you're going through, you know, just to be a listening ear, but also, it also helps you to avoid developing a God complex and resentment because one of the things that possibly can, can creep in when you're in law enforcement or um, paramedic is that, that life and death struggle, the good and evil thing where, you know, you're out and about doing all this and saving the world. What would you know about it? So that, that can creep in a little bit too. And so Do you think to, it's interesting you describe that as a God complex. I would just say that that's how you would, I don't know, I don't even know if, I wouldn't describe it as a God complex. I don't know what I'd describe it as, but. Yeah, yeah that's the closest I know. can come to. It's, it's, not, it's not so much yeah. like, um, not like, not like uh, power of life and death sort of stuff, but more a case of, um, um, you, you, you sort you of know are what like you're that, talking about. That thin blue line, you know, like you are that line between order and chaos. You can sort of buy into that a little bit. I guess, and yeah. uh, and you sort of, you know, you know, you, and yeah, shielding people from from the the hurt and the pain, and then absorbing it all yourself. So, yeah, yeah, it's an interesting concept. So a lot of things happening all at once. So just being able to talk to people, and they, what I find is that the coppers who are currently serving are less likely to talk to another copper because they don't want to admit that they're having a problem. They won't talk to a normal member of public because they don't know what they're going through. 
but someone who's yeah. been in it is now out of it. So sometimes that's helpful. So just to take a bit of pressure I've off heard, them. I've heard that a lot. I've had a lot of, uh, well, not a lot. I've had a few ex-coppers on and um, they've said that. And there's, I think mm. there's quite a few charities in Victoria now that that do do it and um, that have the retirees, you know, talking to the current mm. ones that needing a hand and, and so forth. I think it's important that the protectors also need help as well. Absolutely. I mean, there's only so much that you can deal with. And in this day and age, you just look at the way society is going, it's a lot tougher now. It's a lot tougher than when I was in the job. So um, they need all the support they can Why get. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that is that it's a lot tougher these days? Why, why do you think, oh, God, this could be going down the rabbit hole, Adam, so we'll just touch on it and <laughs> see where it goes. But where? <laughs> why do you think, I don't know, well, do you think that the society's in the shit at the moment? Yeah, well, it's, it's certainly doesn't have the same feeling of um, stability and uh, decency that when I grew up, like no. the 80s and the, the 90s. And, and I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, the, the lack of respect for authority, the the infinite knowledge or, in inverted commas, knowledge that people have at their fingertips. Um, everyone's an expert. And um, so they're, they're more willing to stand up and, and, and um, resist authority, whether it's a teacher, or it's a police officer, all those old institutions that used to have some level of authority. Yeah. So, so yeah. <laughs> so they just sort of um, don't have that now. I think no. with that comes, with that comes that group mentality too, where they, you know, the coppers, like police cars being rocked and, and even burnt and police officers being set upon and, and, and beat more often. And you just, Yeah. Where's so, that happening? Oh, all of, oh, in general, as a, as a police okay, officer, yeah. you know, all over the world, yeah. you know, just so. Oh, yeah. Ameri- um, well, if you discount America, we won't discuss America. It's a whole different <laughs> no, it's, it sure is. fish in terms of their their search circumstances. But, no, it, yeah, it's, it's I just... Sydney and Melbourne, Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane, they're a bit bit tougher to, to police down there than it is up here, that's for sure. I have... I have um, theories in terms of maybe why Victoria is in recent years like that. Um, mm. For the rest of Australia, I don't know. I can't comment. Fair enough. How's Tasmania? It's a much nicer place to Tasmania is lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Brisbane is lovely I refer to I myself as a big... <laughs> we nearly moved to Brizzy, but... Um... Uh, yeah, I referred to myself as a Victorian refugee the other day, so there you go. Um, <laughs> but they let you this, in, though, this so part of the episode, this, this may get cut out. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair enough. You probably cut a lot out, actually. <laughs> no. <laughs> what do you think the main point that you'd like the readers of the book um, to take away from your boys and you writing about the boys? I think it, it comes down to, um, regardless of what people think in from modern times, why the war happened or, or how the war was conducted, it's it's about the individuals and those principles and values that they took with them to the war and, and still even came home with, you know, like um, 
dependability, responsibility, duty, honour, um, sacrifice, love, just that, that that compassion for each other that, you know, we every society needs, um, even now more than ever. You know, people who are willing to look out for each other and look after each other. Um, and they were, they were, these are the ideals that they thought were worth fighting for and dying for. So, And so I, I just really admire their determination and, and their courage and and they genuinely thought they were doing the right thing. And, um, yeah, I think that their sacrifice wasn't in vain. I think mm. what, they, what they fought for, we can still fight for today. And I think that's mm. it's just current now. It's as important it was not to lose that. And I think yeah. it's important not to, to waste that sacrifice as well. I know we Absolutely. sort of touched on society today, but I think it's important that to remember those who did fight for that, those freedoms and have fought mm. for those freedoms since and not to let it be a waste as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you can fall into that trap if people go, oh, what, what a waste. Um, all those men died for nothing. And you think, well, you know, they thought they were they were fighting for the right reasons. And and Well, I would imagine that World War One and World War Two, they all fought. I don't think anyone would question that, would they? Well, yeah, every time I fight, I'll do talks from time to time and people will, will trail out the old, what a waste, and um, it was all for nothing, and and the British just used the Australians as cannon fodder. It's the same old cliches, and that's one of the other things that I hope comes out of the book is there's none of that in there. It's It just tells the truth of what happened to the boys. So I, just to spell well, it. Well, I don't know. Yeah, and I can't comment. I don't know enough about it to comment on those statements but mm. i certainly think that going over and um i mean world war one was meant to stop the wars and then you know everyone mm. was back there again fighting hitler and i think that those mm. were very valid <laughs> wars you know absolutely that, yeah well that's the thing it's you're standing up to bullies and that's what the australians yeah. were doing they, they were they were over there to stop like the the aggression of you know of other nations thinking they can just waltz into someone else's country and take it. And uh, there's, mm. a, there's so many other factors involved why Australia got involved, but um, one of those is that they just don't like bullies. And they, yeah, they we never still, like a bully. No, nah, and they still don't. So, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the bullies can get stuff. <laughs> exactly. They need a good slapping. So that's what you do. You, <laughs> you step When they rise up, you've got to step up and, and knock them back down. So... And that's what I think that the boys went and did. That's why they went. <laughs> Adam, do you have a, another letter that you can read to finish the episode? I'll see what I can find here for you. Um, um, there, was a, there was an instance during the research where I couldn't find where Frank had been for a six-month period. His official service records did not mention anything about it. Um, none of the letters that he wrote that I came across during the war mentioned where he was between... January 1916 and basically May 1916. And it wasn't until we came across the letters from that he wrote to Fred Palmer Archer where he explains basically word for word exactly what he was doing. And that this was a really pivotal moment during my research and the writing of the book. It really changed everything as to how I could write this book. And he's, he's writing about... Um, how it all, all came to be, but this is the way he, he writes. He's, he's writing to Fred. He says, 
Forgive me, Fred, if I deviate here and there as the spirit moves me. Paul Robinson, a few years my senior, we used to shoot together in the Roma Rifle Club pre-World War I. Coming out of hospital in England after Gallipoli following leave, I went to the Australian Details Camp at Weymouth. Troops awaiting draft to Egypt before going to France were there. It was announced on parade that 25 applications were wanted for officers and senior NCOs for five positions as physical training instructors. Uh, as a sergeant, I decided to enter thinking it would be good training. I was safe not to be selected as I was keen to go out to Egypt again and to see France. But to my horror, I was one of the five finalists who got selected as a PT instructor. Well, I had asked for it. So to make the best of things, uh, I got on with it. Conditions at that moment were wonderful. One and a half hours duty, 6 a.m. to 7.30, was our tour of duty for the day. Our special dress, white sweater with heavy rolled collar, black serge trousers, tan sand shoes and a black peak cap. Special tent with special meals and a standing leave pass which allowed us between 7.30 a.m. and 6 a.m. tomorrow morning to go where we liked. London, Bournemouth, etc. Provided we were back on parade by 6 a.m. And this is where Fiona gets, you start to see the character of Frank coming out in the next few lines where he says, it went like this for about six weeks or so, and my conscience began to prick me, particularly when I saw old coppers going through on their way to do their bit again. Though we had been warned by the commanding officer, Colonel Courtney, this was to be a duration of the war job. We had done our bit on Gallipoli. However, here goes. I headed to see the lion in his den requesting to be released. No, definitely no. I said duration of the war, and duration of the war it shall be. And then what follows then is he has a fortuitous meeting with this Paul Robinson who he knew from, from Roma, who's a captain in the light horse, and he just happens to be in Weymouth. And he pulls a couple of strings and manages to get Frank out of this duty and back to Egypt and uh, back into the war. And it just, it really typified to me just um, the type of uh, almost peer pressure by the way that the captain actually says to him, um that's a cold footed job you are on frank so we have frank already feeling like hey i've got to get back i'm feeling pretty awful and then this fellow who's several years his senior and he respects him as a mentor even from from uh roma actually flat out says you're, you're behaving like a bit of a coward you've got cold feet and so the combination of the two and he basically stows away on a ship to get back to egypt without he goes AWOL to get back to the war, basically. <laughs> so, Did he end up joining the Light Horsemen? Uh, no, he went back and joined the 9th Battalion again. He's a, an original 9th Battalion soldier. But um, the captain from the Light Horse, Robinson, he went back and joined the Light Horse. And, and um, so he fought on Gallipoli as well, uh, Robinson. So he had a lot of time for Frank. And... Um, but yeah, he, he basically was very honest <laughs> and put a bit of extra pressure on Frank. But Frank was already thinking, I've got to get back. I just don't know how. And then uh, Robinson managed to find a way to get him back. So, And these letters are included in your book? Oh, yeah. It was it, it allowed me to really expand on how, how Frank went about what he did to get back again. So, yeah, it was, it was fun. It was a fun part of the book to write because he's basically running away from the camp after being told you can't leave. He's lucky and he didn't get caught-martialed. He's very lucky. And I, I, you can, even when he's 
he's contemplating it later and just the whole time he's still in England, moving further and closer to the ship where he's going to get on. He's just expecting to be picked up the whole time. And he's a he's probably the, the biggest goody two-shoes out of all of them. So it was it was awesome. To, it was a really fun section to write. So yeah, Adam, I didn't think book, he had it in him. <laughs> the book is incredible. Um, if anybody listening is a history buff, war buff, um, ancestral information buff, it sounds it's perfect. So where can they find it? Title of the book and where can they find it? Okay, so it's uh, yeah, Judy Nably Done by Adam Holloway uh, from Big Sky Publishing, from Booktopia, uh, any sort of online uh, book retailer, also uh, Dimix, um, QBD, also all sort of bookstores that you can get it from. So, yeah. Um, and the tours are dndbattletours.com.au. They can find that. Is that the website? That's correct. Yeah, absolutely. So we have um, <laughs> pretty much a full tour for April coming up, which is just, Amazing. Um, we're really pleased. What can with people the expect? What they can expect is to, to get away from the, the the memorials and the cemeteries because they only tell part of the story. So we get out onto the onto the ground and actually walk the battlefields and get a proper understanding of that, like, not like a lecture, but a genuine understanding of exactly what happened and why And because um, it's a very unique style of warfare, the trench warfare from the First World War, just getting an understanding. And then... Um, I'll take a, a group after that down to Normandy uh, to go and check out the World War II sites, the D-Day beaches and things like that. So, so it's going to be a lot of fun. So, but 2025, it's already taking bookings. So, if people are interested, come along. It'll be a great time. How many tours do we do a year? At this stage, just the one in April, um, and then we're looking to develop uh, more tours throughout the year just to give people a nice variety of different locations. dndbattletours.com.au. Everyone go and get your tours book. Thanks, Absolutely. Adam. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Fiona. <laughs> the One Moment Please podcast. Yeah.